Well, again, uh, good morning to you all, and I trust you know that today is Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. And as you also probably know, Palm Sunday commemorates Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And would you guess what? Here on Sunday mornings, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. We're just going verse by verse. It's been over a year now, just making our way through the Gospel. And today we're just picking up from where we left off last time. But can you guess what passage we just so happened to come to today in the Gospel of Mark? It is the triumphal entry passage. We just finished Mark chapter 10. Now we're picking up in chapter 11. You can open your Bibles there now to Mark chapter 11. But what's really amazing is I didn't plan this at all. Like the thought of matching up triumphal entry Sunday with the triumphal entry passage didn't even cross my mind once. Like I wish it did because then I could take credit for it, but it didn't. Let's have to chalk it up to providence. But it really is fitting that we get to study the events that took place almost 2,000 years ago on the same day. And even more fascinating is, is the fact that, although there are different reckonings for the date and the year which the Lord died, some people place the triumphal entry on March 29th, which is today, March 29th, the same calendar day. And we can't be dogmatic, we can't know for sure, but it, it's kind of fun to think that this could be the same calendar day of the triumphal entry, making next Sunday the same calendar day of Easter. But anyway, this day does mark the first day of the last week of Christ's life. And from here on out, everything in the Gospel of Mark is focused on his last week, and especially his death. And it's pretty lopsided when you think about it. I mean, how many chapters are in the Gospel of Mark? There's 16. And that means 10 chapters have been given to his whole life. And then six chapters are given to his last week, and mostly his last day. That, that sounds pretty lopsided, doesn't it? It is lopsided. All four Gospels are lopsided in their treatment of the last week of his life. Matthew devotes 30% of his Gospel to the Passion Week. Mark devotes 40% to the Passion Week. Luke devotes 20%. But when you add the events leading up to Jerusalem, it becomes 62%. And John devotes 47% of his Gospel to the last week of Christ's life. And that's, that's extremely lopsided. When you study a biography from history... Most of it's spent on their life, their accomplishments, and just a page or two given to their death. I mean, you don't want to read half the book about how this person died. Most biographies today are just the opposite. For example, the recent Steve Jobs biography, the founder of Apple, I think it's like 700 pages long, and just 1% is devoted to his final days. And what does that tell you? It tells you that at the very least, the gospel writers understood that the last week of Christ's life, specifically his death and resurrection, was the most important thing about him. In fact, it's wrong to classify these as biographies. They're, they're not biographies. They're theological records and implications of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Christ, and the Son of God. It's not just a story. It's a message. It's a message of redemption, the good news about how God, through his Son, provided Salvation for the world. And that message comes into sharper focus during the last week. And again, there's some debate, but the, the majority sees Jesus entering Jerusalem on Sunday, Palm Sunday. On Monday, he curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple. On Tuesday, he teaches at the temple and denounces the religious leaders. He gives the Olivet Discourse, and Judas begins to betray him. On Wednesday, there's no record. But if Jesus actually entered town on Monday instead, it, that would make sense. 
On Thursday, Passover is prepared in the upper room. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They share a last supper, and then they head over to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is betrayed by Judas and arrested. Then begins the trial of Jesus, which lasts all throughout Thursday night into Friday morning. Jesus is finally handed over, scourged, beaten, and then crucified. He hangs on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., at which point he dies. Friday afternoon, he is buried. Saturday, he's in the tomb. And Sunday, he is risen. And that's what takes place during this Passion Week. And I would encourage you to read through these events yourself and reflect on them as you remember and thank and worship God for what he's done. The death and the resurrection of Jesus formed the very foundation of Christianity. So if you don't rightly understand and grasp their significance, you you really have nothing. And of course, that's something we aim to do here all the time, but on your own, I would especially encourage you this week to devote some time to that, to remembering the crucified yet risen Lord. Now that being said, it's not Easter yet, at least in our journey through the Gospel of Mark. First, we must encounter Jesus as he enters Jerusalem, an event which is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. Although I've always found that description to be ironic and and even misleading because it doesn't seem very triumphant or triumphal, at least not in the way most people think, and definitely not in the way the crowds back then thought. This passage marks the long-awaited and much-prophesied coming of the king of the Jews, even the king of the world, but nobody knew it. No one even recognized it. The crowds, they talk a nice talk, but they don't fully understand what's happening here. And even the 12 disciples, they're still missing some pieces of this puzzle. The king of kings who was announced at his birth, he's now finally and formally come to his people, and his entrance is not what you would expect, and his reception is not what you would expect. When you read this passage, especially in light of what happens to Jesus on Friday, you know something's not right here. Something has been missed that the king has been missed. And people today still miss Jesus all the time. They think they know him. They think they know his significance, what he's all about. But they completely miss him. And this passage is likewise missed by many. A lot of people read through this triumphal entry, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And they think, okay, Jesus enters town. But they totally miss the underlying significance, and there is a vast significance here. And this morning, I want to try and expose to you what's really going on with this triumphal entry. I'd even take a wager that most of you will be surprised by what you find, that, that how much is going on and taking place in this, this passage, this, this event. So we're going to read through Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 as we go, but covering it and retelling and exposing what's taking place with this triumphal or even not so triumphal entry. And let's get into it now. We're going to read through and focus on the coming of the king. Let's begin with this, number one, the king's course. The king's course. Chapter 11 starts off with Jesus. He's on his final course to Jerusalem. It gives us the lay of the land. Look at verse 1. It says that as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now stop there for a moment. I just want to begin with a little background here. It's springtime, and the great Passover feast in Jerusalem is just a week away, so tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of Jews are converging on Jerusalem 
for this feast. And just prior to this, Jesus and the disciples were in the ancient town of Jericho. That's where Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus, which stunned the crowds. And just a little while before that, they were down in Bethany, which is right next to Jerusalem. And that's where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so there was a lot of excitement around Jesus while he was in Jericho. The crowds were already building as he moved on to Jerusalem. Now the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 20 miles long. And you start off at 850 feet below sea level, and you end up, end up 2,100 feet above sea level. So this, this is not an easy little hike. Now regarding the timeline, from John 12, we can establish Jesus left Jericho on Saturday morning. And his first stop was not Jerusalem, but Bethany. Bethany was a tiny little town on the southern slope of the Mount of Olives, just like two miles away from Jerusalem. Bethany is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And when Jesus showed up Saturday night, they hosted him for dinner. And that's when Mary anointed Jesus with that costly perfume. Remember that? Hearing that Jesus arrived in Bethany, already many Jews were going out to see him in Bethany, and they also wanted to see Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was a huge deal. And people, they wanted to see him with their own eyes. Interestingly, John chapter 12, verse 10, says that the chief priests, they planned on putting Lazarus to death as well because they knew he was leading so many people to believe in Jesus. Anyway, Saturday night, they spend the night in Bethany. Then on Sunday, Jesus sets out for Jerusalem, in which we have recorded here, this triumphal entry in Mark 11. As a side note, it's possible that Jesus spent another day Sunday in Bethany and he didn't leave and enter Jerusalem until Monday. It's very possible. It's hard to be dogmatic because we don't have these calendar days written down in the text. But either way, they depart from Bethany and they go on the couple-mile journey to Jerusalem. At first, Jerusalem is not in sight. It's blocked by the Mount of Olives, which is really more like a big hill. It's not a mountain. But as they wind around, the city finally comes into view, sitting across the Kidron Valley. And Herod's temple complex would have dominated the scene. You have all these tiny little specks of buildings in this massive temple. But before you get to Jerusalem on this road, you you encounter Bethphage. Another city, little town, probably sat on another slope of the Mount of Olives. It's basically a suburb of Jerusalem. And it was here in Bethphage that... Jesus had some special business to attend to in preparation for him entering Jerusalem. But like any king, of course, he commissions his disciples to do the work for him, to make these preparations for his way. And so we see, number two, the king's commission. The king's course. Secondly, the king's commission. Let's read this again. Verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. So this mission here, it's pretty simple. Get Jesus a ride. Jesus wants to ride down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, through the Golden Gate and the eastern wall of Jerusalem, into the temple court, and he wants to do so on a colt. 
Now, what's kind of striking here is that Jesus always walked everywhere. Yeah, okay, occasionally he took a boat across the Sea of Galilee, but he was walking all the time. Never do we see him on a horse or a donkey or a mule. Jesus commissions two of his disciples to go into this village. Most likely it was Bethphage and secure a cult. Chances are these two disciples were Peter and John. Just a few days after this, Jesus commissions Peter and John to go and find a, and prepare an upper room for them for the Last Supper. But here, though, the mission is to get a cult. Now, when you hear the word cult, you're probably thinking a young horse. Like the football team, the Indianapolis Colts. They're, they're horses. They're not donkeys. They're a team of horses. But this word in the Greek just refers to the young of any animal. So this could be a young horse, a young donkey, a young mule. And we know for a fact it was a young donkey. In fact, Matthew 21 tells us that Jesus actually wanted two donkeys. One was older and one was a colt, a young one. See, this colt, this young donkey, was one on which no one had ever sat. And that was perfect for Jesus, since unused animals were always required for sacred or ceremonial uses. But being unused, that also meant this donkey wasn't broken in. Horses, even donkeys, need to be broken in for, for to be to be ridden well, but not with this colt. Jesus, though, likely commandeered the colt, and probably its mother, so that it would come without a fight, just quietly, gently. Anyway, this mission, it's pretty clear. For the two disciples to go into Bethphage, get these two donkeys, so that Jesus can come and ride the younger one, the colt, into town. Now, at first glance, it might seem like Jesus is telling these two disciples to go and steal someone's donkeys. He's like, hey, guys, go into this town. You're going to find a colt. Just untie it and bring it back here. It's like a donkey heist. (laughs) You can probably make the case that since Jesus is king, he has the right, the prerogative, to commandeer any beast of burden that he wants. It's like today how the FBI, they can commandeer your car if there's an emergency. But, but no, Jesus, he's not stealing these donkeys. He is commandeering them, that's, that's true, but he also promises they'll be returned immediately. And additionally, it's pretty obvious that the owners of these donkeys were disciples of Jesus as well. Jesus instructs the disciples that if anyone asks you what you're up to, just simply reply, the Lord has need of it. And that would be enough to get rid of any suspicions. Jesus is referring to himself as Lord here, and it's pretty clear that only someone friendly toward Jesus would find this a sufficient reason for letting someone take their donkeys. We have to remember this is Bethphage near Bethany where Lazarus was raised. And after that incident, a lot of people in this region came to believe in Jesus. And most likely the owners of these donkeys had come to believe in him as well. So we have the plan. It's clear. Jesus commissions these two disciples and off they go. Look at verse 4. They went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them and they gave them permission. Now some have suggested that Jesus made arrangements for the, this cult to be taken at an earlier time. But that really betrays the, the details and the spirit of the story. 
Instead, like with the Passover room, this is an instance where Jesus taps into his divine foreknowledge and providence through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. This is a prophetic prediction given by Jesus to show that he's fully in control of all of the events leading up to his own death. He is not the victim of chance or circumstance. Rather, he's the master of his own destiny. He's going to Jerusalem to die on the cross by God's own will and design. This, this is just the plan. This is not an accident or an act of man. The king commissions his servants with full authority. The plan is perfectly executed. The cult is brought back to Jesus. And next we see number three, the king's chariot. The king's chariot. Verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it and he sat on it. Now, what do I mean by the king's chariot? Because there's no chariot here. There's just a donkey. Well, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of highlighting just what kind of a king Jesus is. Do you recall Mark's original audience for his gospel? It was the, the young believers in the city of Rome. They were the first recipients of the gospel of Mark. And they would have been very used to seeing triumphal entries all the time. Roman generals coming back from conquering some new territory, they would return to Rome and the city would throw them a parade or they were called triumphs. The general would wear a crown. He would wear all like a purple toga embroidered with gold. He would ride in a four-horse chariot as a procession through the streets of Rome with his vast army and trailing behind were all the prisoners of war in chains. In short, it was a triumphal entry fit for a king. It was glorious. It was a, it was a show. But Jesus, who's the real king of the Jews, he's even the king of kings, he has no glorious entrance. He has no chariot. That's, that's striking. That would not have slipped past Mark's original audience. Jesus came in no special dress, no regalia, showing him as divine. He carried no sword. He had no army. And most notably, he rode no horse. There was no mighty steed here. There, he, there was just a donkey, a young donkey. I mean, where, where's the glory in that? There's no glory in that. Talk about the Colts earlier. You know, several American football teams have been named after animals. And they always pick some ferocious or noble animal because who wants a wimpy mascot? And so in the bird kingdom, you have the eagles, the seahawks, the falcons. In the cat family, you have the lions, the bengals, the jaguars, the panthers. You throw in the rams and the bears and even the broncos, a horse. And I guarantee you'll never see a team named after a donkey. You know, they're trying to make a new team in L.A., the L.A. Donkeys. Not going to happen. <laughs> There's no glory there. There's no power in that. But Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey is significant for a couple of reasons. First, he's channeling Old Testament imagery. King David rode on a mule. And Solomon, when he was coronated as king, rode the king's mule. Back then, donkeys and mules were held in a higher light. And secondly... Jesus is highlighting what kind of a king he is. He's the Prince of Peace. And regarding his first coming, he doesn't come with the sword. 
He does not come to wage war. He does not come to overthrow Rome. Rather, he comes in humility and meekness and gentleness. And he comes to suffer. This king did not come to kill, but to die for his people. And his reign would not start on a throne, but on a cross. Yet, in so doing, he would establish a kingdom that was far greater than Rome. And thirdly, Jesus comes on a donkey to fulfill a very specific prophecy that was given 550 years earlier. Matthew 21 says that Jesus intended to fulfill Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, identifying himself as the Messiah, the King of the Jews, who will even have dominion over the ends of the earth. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Look, Jesus walked everywhere. We're talking thousands, tens of thousands of miles over the course of his life. Just you walk everywhere. And so are we led to believe that literally in the last mile of his journey, he gets too tired, just needs a ride? Like, I'm just, I'm exhausted? No, I don't think so. This was a claim to authority and an identification with prophecy. There's over 300 messianic prophecies, and Jesus fulfills them all to a T. And this is no exception. He was fully aware of the messianic significance of his actions riding on this donkey. And the crowd even appears to understand a little bit about who Jesus is at first glance. And this brings us to number four, the king's coronation. The king's coronation. Let's resume in verse 8. They brought the colt to Jesus. He sat on it, and many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, first read, this sounds great. And, and it is great, in a sense. People, they're, they're championing Jesus as the Messiah. They are. John chapter 12, verse 13 says this outright, the parallel, that they were shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Matthew 21 says they were calling him also the Son of David, a very clear messianic title. Jesus used to keep quiet the fact that he was the Messiah because his time had not yet come. But this is the time. This, this is it. And so now it's, it's loud, it's open, and he doesn't care. Let them say it. Now some Pharisees are in the crowd, and they're outraged because this crowd is basically calling Jesus the Messiah. And so they're very angry at this, and, and Luke chapter 19, verse 39 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Obviously because they shouldn't be saying that, son of David, king of Israel. But Jesus said to them, verse 40, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. This had to happen. So in a sense, this is a good and right response from the people. Jesus is the Messiah. He should be welcomed and praised. And they show their adoration for him by spreading their coats on the road, and some others cut down branches, put them in the road, hence Palm Sunday. 
This is, this is like the ancient way of rolling out the red carpet for a VIP. The crowd had, had really swollen. Some people had followed along from Bethany. Others had come from Jerusalem. The crowds converged and sandwiched Jesus in the middle. And they all started heading to the city. And according to Luke 19, verse 37, as they began the descent of the Mount of Olives, with all of Jerusalem in view now, the whole multitude broke out and praised to God with a loud voice, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now I'd wager that Hosanna is one of those words from the Bible that you've heard, but you have no idea what it means. It's like at Christmas time we sing Gloria in Excelsis Deo. And do you even know what you're singing? You know what it means. Glory to God in the highest. Hosanna is another one of those words. This word is derived from a Hebrew expression in Psalm 118, verse 25, which basically means, save us, we pray. It's like saying, Lord, save us. And the next verse in Psalm 118 is also what the people quote when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a prayer. It's a cry to God to save his people, to deliver them once again. And again, it sounds good. I mean, they're saying the right things. But in another sense, this whole thing is incomplete. Notice verse 10. The people are also shouting, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. All the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, he would reestablish the Davidic kingdom. It's just that they were looking for an earthly political kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom. They were looking for a different type of Messiah. All throughout the Gospels, it becomes very clear that the Jews were anticipating a nationalistic kingdom. They were looking for a Messiah to come and be a conquering king, overthrowing Roman occupation and delivering Israel once again. Remember, this is Passover. That's the time when all the Jews remember their deliverance from bondage to Egypt. And they're all hoping for the same deliverance from Rome now. And they all believe the Messiah is the guy who will do it. They want an earthly and political Messiah who will fight their battles for them, who will restore them in prominence over the world. Now, now here's the thing. There's some truth to their expectations. When Jesus comes a second time, indeed, he will be riding on a horse. He will be carrying a sword and he will be a conquering king. That's just Revelation 19, talking about the second coming, which fulfills many Old Testament prophecies. But the people continually failed to listen to Jesus and understand that the Messiah first had to suffer and die. If only they combined Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9 with Isaiah 53, they would have recognized that the Messiah came first to save his people from their sins by dying for them. After all, what good would political deliverance be if everyone is still dead in their sins? And don't misunderstand, the Old Testament does give the expectation of the Messiah setting up an earthly political kingdom that will take place at the second coming. But first, he came as a Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. And that's why he came first riding on a donkey with no sword, no army but instead submitting to the sword of Rome. And as Passion Week 
drew on, it became clear to the Jewish multitude that Jesus wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. He's not opposing Rome. He's not overthrowing the establishment. In fact, later in the week, he goes on to teach people that they should actually pay their taxes to Rome. The Messiah would never say that, right? And instead, they see Jesus opposing Israel. He's cleansing the temple. He's condemning the religious leaders. I mean, the Messiah would not do that, right? That can't be right. And so as the week goes on, they became disillusioned. Jesus was not living up to their expectations. It became very clear he's not going to lead a political revolution. That's just not going to happen. And so at the incitement of the religious leaders, the people turned on Jesus and a mere five days later were shouting for his crucifixion. Now, of course, this is all going perfectly according to plan. Read Acts chapter 2, verse 23 for that. But that's why I say this was a not-so-triumphal entry. The people were championing Jesus, but not quite for the right reasons. They were not there celebrating his true mission of dying on the cross to pay for their sins. They just were looking for someone who would finally free them from Rome. Now, before you think the crowd fickle, remember, the twelve disciples were also in the same boat. They, too, still had these visions of of a glorious earthly kingdom that would come in any moment, and they would be rulers over it. But they would abandon Jesus just like everyone else. When the kingdom didn't come like they expected when Jesus was arrested and then crucified, they became just as disillusioned. All of these people needed eyes to see and ears to hear just like we do today. And what I find also so amazing, Jesus, he knew this was all going to happen and was happening around him. Can you imagine how lonely he felt during the triumphal entry? Just think about that. He's surrounded by this throng of people. They're all praising him. They're acclaiming him as the Messiah. They're rejoicing over his coming. Yet he knows that literally all of these people will abandon him in less than a week. How sad he must have felt internally knowing that. Knowing that these people, they didn't really know who he was. They they did not recognize him. And so I'm really not surprised to find Jesus crying during the triumphal entry. Did you know that? That during the triumphal entry, while he's sitting there riding on the donkey, he sees Jerusalem, he starts to cry. And he does so because he knew he was actually being rejected. He wasn't being accepted. He was, he was going to be rejected. The parallel Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44 says this. It's on the donkey and it says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children with you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Here is the long-awaited Messiah finally come for his people, but they didn't recognize him. And they would even... Kill him. And Jesus wept in compassion over them, but they were lost. They had rejected. 
Israel was hardened. And in a mere 35 years after this, what he said would come true to the full. Jerusalem and the temple were completely destroyed by the Romans. But Israel was not without excuse. They should have known. They should have recognized Jesus their Savior. They should have accepted him and embraced him. Even though he wasn't what they were necessarily expecting, they should have known. But too bad their sights were set too much on this world, not the next. And so they missed the coming of their own king. This didn't stop Jesus, though. He kept going because he had a work to do, a mission to complete. And so we see, lastly, number five, the king's coming. Number five, the king's coming. Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. And I love this because it's so anticlimactic. Jesus enters town and does what? Nothing. There's no stirring speech. There's no riling up the crowd. There's no mob to take over Rome. He just looks around and calls it a day. Now in Matthew we learn he does heal a few people, but nothing comes of it. The crowd that came with him just blends into the Passover crowd. They just disperse. He's left alone. He goes home for the night. It's very anticlimactic. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why even go to the temple? He's not a tourist. He's not taking in the sights, the stone, the gold, the marble. He's not offering prayers. He didn't come to make a sacrifice. Why is he there? What's he doing at the temple? Well, when you realize what Jesus does at the temple the next day, it becomes evident that this is God's final inspection of the whole Jewish system. On day one, Jesus enters Jerusalem, goes to the temple, looks around, goes home. On day two, he goes to Jerusalem, enters town, enters the temple, and cleans house. And we're not talking with Windex. He is cleaning out the temple, driving out all the merchants, overturning the tables of the money changers. For as he says, this temple, his temple, was meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but Israel had turned it into a robber's den. So it's clear that on the day of the triumphal entry, Jesus was evaluating the state of Israel's religion one last time, confirming just how far they had fallen. That they were so lost, they had gone so far astray. And the only thing left for this temple and this nation, sadly, was was judgment. The king had come, but he was rejected. Israel had rejected their own God, In word, by adding to the Torah. In deed, by adding works to faith. And now even in person, by denying their very king, God in the flesh. Roughly 600 years before any of this happened, the prophet Ezekiel received a vision of God's glory departing from Israel. The nation had become so wicked at that time that God could not dwell with them any longer. So his glory is pictured as leaving the temple and heading east from the temple to the eastern gate of the city wall. From the gate to the Mount of Olives. For the Mount of Olives is gone. God's glory has departed from his people. He has abandoned them to destruction and dispersion for their wickedness. But there's hope. 
For later in Ezekiel 43, he receives another vision, this time of God's glory returning to the temple, to the people. And how does God's glory return? In the exact same path it left from the Mount of Olives to the eastern gate to the temple. God will be with his people again. He will restore them. And God said that at that time, the Son of Man would dwell among his people forever and the house of Israel would not again defile his name nor go astray. And realize that when Jesus came into Jerusalem that day, he took the exact reverse path of God's glory when it left the temple. Jesus was the glory of God returning to his people. However, the people did not recognize him or receive him. Israel did not turn from their defilements. They even killed the Son of Man, the Lord of glory. And so Ezekiel 43 was not fulfilled when Jesus came the first time. The king was rejected. But even in this rejection, he paved the way for restoration, for hope, for redemption, and not just for Israel, but for all the nations. The rejected Savior would even endure being rejected by God the Father himself. In a sense, as he, who made, as he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 On the cross, Jesus was cut off as he was made to pay the penalty for our sins because we've all gone astray, just like Israel. Yet by this once-for-all sacrifice, we can be saved and forgiven, justified, redeemed, Jesus really was the Prince of Peace. He came and he made peace between us and God by taking away our sins. And for this reason, he really is our Lord and Savior. And unlike all those crowds, we really will cheer him and worship him and remember him for all the right reasons. You need to see Jesus for who he really is. He's not your buddy. He's not a self-help guru. He's not your ticket to a nice middle-class life. He's not a sage giving out life advice. He's not a magic charm. Rather, he is the Messiah, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead to deal away with our real sin problem before God once for all. And it's only by seeing Jesus, the real Jesus, who he really is and what he really did, that you can be saved yourself. And Christ, after rising from the grave, makes the offer that now whosoever believes in him and follows him will have eternal life. So have you considered this? Have you done this? Have you turned from your sins and confessed him as Lord? Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And truly, Jesus is Lord. Our passage highlights that fact. He did not lose his life. No one took it from him. He willingly gave it up. From this issue with the donkey to the Passover room to the cross itself, he's in charge the whole time. He even told the disciples several times leading up to this what was going to happen to him precisely in Jerusalem because this was just part of the plan, plan of redemption. He is the Lord, and realizing this, you must submit to him as Lord even when he doesn't live up. To your expectations of him. 
Jesus has no use for false disciples. Like those in the crowd who cheer him on Sunday, but kill him on Friday. Or, you know, like people who get religious once a year on Easter. But then never give him another thought. Rather, he's looking for those who are willing to follow him, not to the parade, but to the cross. Everyone wants to follow Jesus when he thinks he's leading them to their best life now. But will you still follow when you realize he's actually leading you to the cross, to your own cross? Will you deny yourself, pick up your cross to follow him, he said. Will you forsake your will and your ways for his will and his ways? That's the mark of true discipleship and true salvation. You need to get Jesus right. You need to get the response to Jesus right, which is a genuine repentance over your sin and a faith in him where you forsake everything to follow him. And do this, if you haven't, do this today. Before it's too late, before you perish, or before he returns. And he will return. There is a second triumphal entry. Did you know that? There will be a second triumphal entry, and that's when he will fulfill Ezekiel chapter 43 and many others. The glory of God will return. And according to Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4, when he comes back, where does he first land, so to speak? On the Mount of Olives. And then Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Though Jesus came humble and meek, even on a donkey, he has since been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And there will come a day when all people will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2.11 Just be among those who confess Christ as Lord here and now so that you may be with Him then and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we confess You as God and we confess Christ as Lord. And we do so now. Lord Jesus, you are the one, uh, the promised one, the Messiah, the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as we reflect on this passage, we remember what you did. So many years ago, yet the work still stands. You came, born of a virgin, you lived that perfect life. And yet you willingly went to die on the cross. Though you were perfectly innocent without any sin, you, you went there. Why? Because, because you loved us, because you sought God's glory, because you wanted to redeem us. We, we remember now, and we will all this week, especially Friday and Sunday, but every day may we remember the price paid for, for us, for our redemption, the price paid for our own sins. We are guilty. We are no different than Israel, than the disciples. We have all fallen far short. We all go astray. We have sin, yet in great love, but also in great Loneliness, Christ, you paid the penalty for us. We just can only thank you for that. How worthy you are to follow. How can we not forsake our ways and our will for yours? For yours is the way, the truth, and the life. You are 
the way, the truth, and the life. We pray for continued grace to follow you, to seek you, to remember you all of our days. And for any here who have not done that, convict them, open their eyes to see their sin, but to see the gift given to them if they would only receive it before it is too late. Lord, we anticipate your return. We pray that you come quickly in glory. And uh, in the meantime, we will remember you and worship you all of our days. We give you thanks and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.